today's reading is taken from um, the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives for ever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives for ever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you've purchased men for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Do keep your Bibles open and we will pray as we come to the Lord's word and ask for his help. Father, thank you that we have this powerful imagery and um, these two chapters that are, are, well, you're trying to tell us something important in them. Please help us to see what that is and to apply it to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, over the last few weeks, we've been in the book of Revelation, where we're working our way through the whole of the book of Revelation over the, the coming uh, weeks. And we saw over the last two weeks that this letter was originally written to the seven churches of Asia, that is Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And, and we saw that this letter was meant to be passed around to each of those churches and, and read by all of them and all the other churches around who were suffering persecution in the midst of the Roman Empire. In their society, the Roman vision of reality was reinforced everywhere they looked. So civic and religious architecture projected the unimaginable wealth and power of the empire. Statues and iconography depicted the godlike majesty of Caesar in his full military regalia. Every cultural institution, the, the, the temples and the festivals in the streets, they were all celebrating the favor of the pagan gods with wine and with debauchery, with feasting and the arts. And they were all, all these things were meant to train people to desire the earthly kingdom to desire the earthly kingdom, to make them people whose highest allegiance is to the state. People who, who saw Caesar as the only true God worthy of worship. People who saw the revelry of pagan worship as the only transcendence on offer. The theologian uh, James K.A. Smith in his book Desiring the Kingdom, he argues that our culture is not so different from theirs. Our culture presents us with a certain vision of reality and trains us to desire through certain rituals and, and practices to desire, well, the earthly kingdom, to be a certain kind of people. He suggests that in our wealthy, developed world, one of the, the key places where we are shaped by secular liturgies, by cultural liturgies, is in shopping malls. In shopping malls, we're presented with a certain vision of reality. In shopping malls, uh, we see a vision of our brokenness. Our relationships with each other are reshaped. We're offered redemption, and we're given a, a, a certain vision of what human flourishing looks like. Let me flesh that out a little bit for you. So, our brokenness. Advertisements are a kind of evangelism to us. They say, well, they show us images of things we should have, but we don't. Like fashionable clothes and, and fancy hairstyles and shiny technology 
and they make us feel broken because we don't have those things. But salvation is near. We go shopping and our relationships are reshaped. So we end up competing with each other, comparing ourselves against the advertisement and saying, oh, well, her shoes aren't that fashionable, but mine are a little better. And his clothes, well, they're not quite as high quality as mine are. That's last season stuff. And we compare ourselves with each other and rank ourselves against each other. We find redemption at the mall because buying things can fix our flaws. So whether that's our body shape or our skin problems or our unfashionable clothes, redemption is a card tap away. And then flourishing. We find flourishing in the mall or a picture of flourishing because it tells us with enough money, everybody can be our servant waiting on us and every pleasure can be ours as long as we have the money in the accounts. You see, it's, it, it is a vision of reality that we're being given. But it's one that makes, while it's one that makes the shopping centers of Hong Kong flourish, the only problem is it doesn't work. The secular liturgy doesn't work. It, it doesn't lead to the flourishing it promises. The happiness we get from buying things wears off very quickly, even when we tell ourselves it's not going to this time. This will surely deliver me. It doesn't. So we then go buy the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and our, our brokenness is never fixed. Our redemption never accomplished. Our flourishing always deferred. So what does that have to do with Revelation? Whether you were a subject of the empire in the first century or a citizen of Hong Kong in the 21st century, Revelation 4 and 5 opens a window on a different reality. To people surrounded by empty secular liturgies that never deliver what they promise, here's a liturgy of heaven. That's what apocalyptic literature does. It unveils reality. What lies behind all things. And this is the spiritual reality we're seeing here in all its intensity. It speaks about the idolatries that we've grown used to as prostitution. Of empires, human empires, as bloodthirsty beasts because it's trying to wake us up to what is real. And when the mask comes off in these chapters, what do we find at the center of the universe? We find God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enthroned, surrounded by all creatures of heaven and earth, falling at his feet, worshiping him eternally in songs of endless praise. And Revelation says, this is what's real. This is reality. More real than any of the empty idolatries of our culture. And it's the only reality that is going to set us free, that can set you free. The first thing to note from chapter 4 is that God is worthy of all worship 
because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. You do have some notes in your handout if you want to uh, make notes as we go along. After the introductory vision of Jesus in, the, in this letter of Revelation, that was chapters 1 to 3, I think it's helpful for us to recognize that we're now entering a new vision in the book. The second major vision, the second of four. John signals each new vision, this is the structure of the book, with the words, in the Spirit. So in chapter 1, verse 10, he said, uh, in the Spirit, he was given a vision of the risen Christ on the Isle of Patmos. In chapter 4, verse 2, which is our reading this morning, John is given a second vision in the Spirit, he says, of events unfolding from a heavenly perspective in the throne room. In chapter 17, verse 3, John is given a third vision in the Spirit of the same events unfolding from the earthly wilderness. So a heavenly perspective, an earthly perspective, and then in chapter 21, verse 10, John is given a fourth vision of a new Jerusalem when heaven comes down to earth in the Spirit. So here in chapters 4 and 5, John is giving us a vision of the throne room of heaven itself. And like all of Revelation, this vision is not wildly new, although it might seem like that if we're not familiar with the rest of the Bible, but it's rooted in the imagery of the Old Testament. These chapters follow the structure and content of Daniel 7, and to a lesser extent, Ezekiel 1 and 2, which you might want to go cross-reference later in the day on your own time. And I put a, an extensive chart of cross-references from uh, Revelation, just not so that you chase all of them up, but so, so that you can see how deeply rooted the book is in the Old Testament. And what we see in these chapters is uh, from this Old Testament imagery, a description of God's indescribable glory. So he has the appearance of precious stones surrounded by a rainbow. These are the, the, the most beautiful things in creation. And God is something like that. That's what John says. He appears something like that. And he's surrounded by 24 crown-wearing elders which are dressed in white, which are to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, the, that, that is the saints, old and new, surrounding God's throne. And the four creatures, drawing on the imagery of Ezekiel 1, represent all the creatures of the earth, the flying beasts and the, the, the ones in the fields and, and the wild beasts and, and humanity itself. They all act on God's behalf, showing us what creatures doing what they should do, do. They worship God. Eyes cover them, showing God's omniscience. These are highly symbolic descriptions. They're meant to convey something of what God's glory is like to us, even if we examine them in depth, even if we cross-reference them with Old Testament parallels, the imagery leaves some questions open to us. So what should we make of it? Well, this is where a pretty trustworthy principle of biblical interpretation comes in. Okay, take this away and it will help you with your Bible reading in general. If you're unsure of what to make of any 
narrative or descriptive passage from Scripture, keep reading until you find a song. Because the song is usually the interpretive key that unlocks what you're supposed to take away from what's just happened. You see it in Exodus when, when Moses leads the people through the water. What does he do first of all on the other side of the water after the Egyptians have been drowned? He sings a song. And the song explains. And here the song explains. So we see in, in verses 8 to 11 this much needed interpretation. Each of the four living creatures... Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever those creatures give glory and honor and thanks, the 24 elders fall down, lay their crowns before him, and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you've created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. In this hymn, the four living creatures do what all living creatures should do. They praise God for his holiness. They, they glorify him for his work of creation. And the 24 elders, they show what redeemed humanity should do. They bow. They give their crowns to him. All the glories that they have, all the honor that they have, they hand off to him. And seeing God for who he is, frees them, and it frees us from all idolatries, all the idolatries of the world. How could anybody worship Caesar or the state if they know that God is like this? How could anybody go on shopping and seeking power and working for their own reputation, thinking that will satisfy when they see that they're made for this. Every creature is made to glorify him. Every human meant to cast crowns before him. He's worthy of worship day and night. Why? Because he created all things, and by his will they were created and have their being. Now, w one thing that means... You could take a lot of things from this, but one thing that means at least is that worshiping together here is probably, is almost certainly, is surely the most important thing that we can be doing, isn't it? Because here, for about an hour and a half a week, we are having our perspective realigned with the heavenly reality. Throughout the week, the, the cultural liturgies of shopping and work and education, they are trying to co-opt our worship. They're saying to us, come and worship these things, these achievements, these things you can buy, this reputation you can build for yourself, this cushy retirement you can have. Come and worship this. And for an hour and a half a week, we're here saying, no, only the one on the throne. Only worship him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. 
And that means that for that time, for the time that we're here right now, in this little schoolroom, in this little town, a window to heaven is opening up. Have you ever thought about this like that? We're peering into eternity as we worship together in song and prayer, as we give our attention to God. This is the heavenly throne room. This is the outer court of the heavenly throne room. We are for just a short time finally doing what we're created to do. What could be more important than that? What could be more reviving than that? Because friends, we will worship. We're the kind of creatures made to worship. We have to. We don't have a choice. Whether we're in church or the mall, we'll worship. But where will we direct our worship? Who's going to receive our worship? I want you to close your eyes and imagine for a moment how pathetic it would be to stand in some dark corner of the universe bowing down and worshiping Caesar, the pathetic little man who will die in the the lifespan of a human. When the one on the throne who was, who is, who is to come remains, radiant with light, I want you to imagine turning aside into the the cathedrals of career, the cathedrals of consumerism in Central this week, and worshiping there when actually the one on the throne, surrounded by everything, is there to worship. How pathetic is that? The heavenly reality has got to shape our earthly reality, our approach to life. And our Lord's Day gatherings are where it happens, where we're being trained. The the second thing to see from chapter 5 is that Christ is worthy of all worship because he's the Redeemer who directs history. Now, if chapter 4 is the worship of God the Father, the Creator, chapter 5 is the worship of God the Son, the Redeemer. The Spirit is there. He's referred to as the seven spirits of God, uh, referring back to Isaiah 11. Um, We've talked about that briefly in previous weeks, but Jesus is revealed as the only hope for our world in chapter 5. As we'll see, he is either the way, the truth, and the life, or there is no way, no truth, and no life. That's what we're being taught here. In this chapter, we're, we're drawing on the imagery of Daniel 7 and 12, of Ezekiel 2 and 3, when John sees a scroll, verse 1 of chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. The scroll, I think, should be understood to be God's unfolding plan of judgment and redemption for the whole world. There, on front and back, written on front and back, because it's such a full plan, are all the developments of history. To open it would be to understand the purpose of history, to understand where it's going, how it's going to be brought to its appointed end. 
the scroll is going to reveal how all the apparent chaos of the world, the confusion of the world, is actually part of the divine plan that cannot be thwarted, that will be fulfilled. And we know that because of what we see in the subsequent chapters, 6 through 8. But here is the problem. In chapter 5 is the problem. Who's going to open the scroll? Who can tell us what the purpose of history is? Where it's going? Who can assure us that it's going to end up there? And the angel says, nobody. Nobody can open it. And John weeps because he's desperate to see how is God going to salvage all this? He's longing to know how is the persecution of the church in Asia at his time, the suffering of God's people at his time, how's that going to be part of God's plan? Is it part of God's plan? How's that going to be incorporated? And maybe he also longs to know how's my suffering going to be part of that great story? You know, I'm here in exile on Patmos. I've been treated cruelly. Is that part of God's plan too? And surely you want to know, how is your suffering? How have your sadnesses been incorporated into the plan? But unless the scroll is opened, we will never know. And more than that, there'll be no reason to believe that there's anything guiding history at all. It's all just chaos. It's all just confusion. That's why John is weeping. But then as he weeps, he's reassured by one of the saints that there is somebody worthy to, to open up the scroll. Verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And, you know, maybe for a moment he's there and, and he hears that and he thinks, okay, now the Jesus I met in the first vision, the blazing, roaring Jesus with the, the, the sword coming out of his mouth is going to come and grab the scroll and he's going to open it and show us what history is all about. But verse 6, a lamb, looking as if he's been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. The lamb, he has seven horns, seven eyes, and seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went, he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, obviously, Jesus is not walking around heaven as a lamb. That's not what we're to take away from this. The point being made is that the triumph that makes Jesus worthy of all worship, worthy to direct and unfold all of history, is his sacrificial death. Is that what you think about when you think about triumph? A crucified Savior, dead, buried, raised on the third day. Is that your triumph? You know, last week we, we read all these promises to the seven churches about how they would get the, the, um, the tree of life. They, their name would be written in the Lamb's book of life. 
They'd be given white robes and crowns and, and glory, all these things showing them what a glorious eternity they will get if only they can overcome, if only they can triumph. It's the same word used here, nikao, Nike, triumph. This is what overcoming looks like. The lamb who was slain. Is that the kind of triumph you want? Or were you hoping for some other kind of triumph? The fact is that God has redefined victory in Christ. Christians will only ever triumph insofar as we take up our cross and follow him. His call on your life is a call to come and to die. But notice too, the lamb who is slain stands. He moves. His horns represent power. He died, but he lives forever, and so too will everybody who follows him. All who die with him will rise with him. The pattern of Jesus' life is the pattern of the individual Christian life. And it also seems to be the pattern of world history as a whole. Those who are willing to follow Christ to their death end up overcoming every earthly power. Isn't that the interpretation that the song at the in verses 9 and 10 gives to us? They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain with the blood with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Consider for a moment how we went from a Roman empire where Jesus was killed as a criminal in the outskirts of the empire. Basically, he was treated as nothing. Where, where Caesar was worshipped as the only true God across the known world to those people. Consider how we got from that to today where Jesus is worshipped all over the known world and Caesar is a salad. How did we get there? How did, how did that transition take place? It's the pattern of Christ. World history has a pattern. In the, the microcosm of the individual Christian's life, this is the pattern. In the macrocosm, the, the big picture of the world, this is the pattern. Those who sacrificially die with Christ will be raised to reign with him. And the only appropriate response to that is the worship that we see in verses 8 to 14 of this chapter. See how these chapters build to a crescendo of praise. This is, it starts with the four living creatures, right? That represent all the, the creatures of the earth. Then the 24 elders join in. The redeemed people of God join in with the worship. Then the thousands of, and, and thousands, and then the, the tens of thousands and tens of thousands of angels. And finally, who is worshiping by the end of chapter 5, verse 13? Who do we see worshiping there? Who? Every creature. 
every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and in it. That about about covers it, right? That's everything. This is a crescendo of praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures say, Amen. And the elders fall down and worship. So all creation exists for the glory of God. The animals exist to proclaim Christ's great worth. The birds, the fish, the cattle, your dogs, your cats, everything for his praise. Why? Because he controls world history. Jesus is bringing history to its glorious, happy end. And that should be a cause for your celebration and for mine. And that brings us back to the the more personal. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus controls the way your life has turned out and will turn out? He's in control of the way your kids' lives will turn out. He's in control of the destiny of your business and your city and the world. He's worthy to open the scroll, and that should make us celebrate. There's nobody better to have control over all those things. I mean, this is the lamb who was slain. He gave his blood to save. There's nobody more personally invested in this world than Jesus is. That's why he's worthy to reign. So who or what are you worshiping? Who are the sacrifices in your life for? If they're not for him, for who? Only he's worthy. Let's pray. Amen. Father God, thank you that you give us this window into reality. Please would you use it to shake us loose from the secular liturgies, the, the, the vision given to us by our culture of what life is about, of what we should worship. Please break us free of that and help us to gather with all your creatures around your throne. I pray that for those who haven't yet seen that and committed to that, maybe this morning you would convict them and convince them. And I pray for those of us who have maybe lost sight of it. Please renew our vision. We pray for your glory and in the name of Christ. Amen.